0: This recording has been prepared by Aravis Capital Limited, hereafter referred to as Aravis, for entertainment and information purposes only, and is intended solely for professional investors and not retail clients. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute and should not be construed as investment advice, an offer to buy or sell any securities, or an endorsement to make or consider any investment or course of action. You should consult a professional before making any investment decisions. Past performance is not a reliable guide to future performance. Investments can go down as well as up. Aravis does not express any opinion as to the present or future value or price of any instruments referred to in this recording, and the information provided is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. Aravis does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of the information. Any expressions of opinions reflect the view of the speakers and are not necessarily those of Aravis, and are subject to change without notice. This recording is the property of Aravis and is not to be reproduced in whole or in part without prior written consent.
1: Hello and welcome to Aravis Presents. I'm Sam Wood, the Head of Research here at Aravis Capital. Today I'm delighted to welcome Rob Mayner and Chris Barnett from US Value Manager, Kramer rosenthal McGlynn. We will hear more about their backgrounds and the history of CRM during our conversation, but Rob is the Portfolio Manager for the CRM US Equity Opportunity Strategy, while Chris is the Co-CEO of the business. In this conversation, we aim to dig into why value has been such an unpopular approach for so long and if recent returns to value will reverse that trend. Whether we have been in a growth bubble and what that means for value, the outlook for forward returns and active managers pursuing value strategies, and some of the ways CRM are different to their peers. So, uh, welcome, Rob and Chris. Great to have you here on this, this Aravis podcast.
2: Thanks for having us, Sam.
1: Thank you, Sam. No problem. Let's start big picture. Why don't I ask you just both to sort of introduce yourselves um, and, and give, us, give us a bit of a story about sort of CRM, the history, and where you guys have come from.
3: Uh, sure. I guess uh, it's, it's Chris Barnett here. Maybe I'll kick it off. Um, as Sam said, I'm, I'm currently the co-CEO uh, of the firm, and I've been with uh, Kramer Rosenthal McGlynn for coming up on, uh, on 25 years here. Uh, you know, just a brief background on me. I got out of the university in 1994 and went to work for a larger asset manager called Lehman arc. Some of you will have known them as the Lehman, uh, Lehman brothers buy side asset management, uh, part of the business, uh, that was spun out. And I spent a few years there in a, in a sort of a rotation through equities and fixed income and sales and marketing and, uh, and eventually, um, moved on to become the, uh, um, you know, the second sort of distribution person at CRM back in 1997. So this is the firm was, um, you know, was low twenties and people, I was probably, you know, employee number 22. Uh, we had just, just broken into the institutional business literally in the last, you know, call it five or six years and had sort of uh, the consulting world, the allocator world had really started to blossom in the, uh, in the early nineties to the mid nineties. And, 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 so, uh, CRM or Kramer, Rosenthal and Glenn at the time really decided that that was, that was when they wanted to declare being an institutional manager, uh, and, and not just have one product, but, you know, have something that could, uh, to get appeal to, uh, multiple areas of the institutional business. So, uh, you know, through that over the last 25 years, I've done a lot of different stuff. But I grew up on the on the non-investment side uh, of the business, uh, running distribution, consultant relations, uh, different parts of the business. Um, was uh, named president. I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago. And then uh, I'm sure we'll get into this. But when we uh, when we bought the firm back uh, three years ago from M&T Bank, um, I took over a, a you know sort of running a, running the business as co-CEO. So I, hopefully it gives you a little little flavor, but it, it's been a long time, uh, and it feels like we've come come full circle. Uh, we can we can get into it, but I, when yeah, I started in nineteen ninety eight, nineteen ninety nine, were uh, small small and mid value were extremely out of favor when I started, right, and, right. And, and you know so yeah. we'll we'll see. So I I joined
2: the firm in uh, in January of two thousand five, and you know I guess almost eighteen years. I I come back to equity research or portfolio management from the accounting uh, world. My first job out of university was with uh, Arthur Anderson, and then I went on to uh, several uh, roles in the uh, the sell side with uh, DLJ and and Dean Witter and other firms and uh, spent a few years at a small hedge fund before joining Kramer in uh, in 2005. So uh, fairly diverse background, spent most of my career uh, in the energy, uh, technology and business services uh, space. That's really my my, my forte, um, and then I picked up more industrial and uh, and consumer uh, experience over time.
1: Great, thanks. And um, as Chris said, you know, and entering the business in 1999, 2000, coming back full circle, it it does feel like um, you know we're almost in a mirror image of that era. And you know, one of the most the biggest pain points I think for value managers has been this sort of just steady decline in interest in their approach over time. And I'm looking here at a chart. Of AUM of value funds as a, as a percentage of you know actively managed strategies since 2007 and the line is just like steadily downwards. you know it's, it's, been, it's been a clear trend um, and there just doesn't seem to be that much interest from allocators in value as an approach now you guys bought the business back in 2017 and I think probably from 2017 to 2020 was was one of the worst periods ever for, for value as a, as a strategy so I'd really like to dig into kind of the motivations behind, you know, buying the business back. What, what made you so confident that that was the right thing to do, even though we were sort of in this and this really sort of poor period for, for value and, and people just weren't interested in, in that approach? really.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, in, in, the, in the deal closed about three years ago, but I think we've been looking at and talking to uh, our parent about doing this for years. And it's a number of things, right? It's never one thing. But I think yeah. the first and foremost, um, we all liked working together, right? So there's this whole group on the investment side that's been together for you know 12 to 15 years. Uh, and we're all sort of the same vintage. I, I just turned 50. Rob's about the same vintage. All the equity owners are sort of 40 to 50 yeah. years old. And so we sort of had another run left in us, for lack of a better word, right? And so it, it made sense that we wanted to stay together and work together, but we, we just weren't aligned. With the you know with us you know busting our tails every day and flying around the world and, and and not really necessarily seeing it directly translate to to us as a firm and so I think that was part of it and then you just you simply got the opportunity because just like just like we're worn out I think everybody's worn out I think you know M and to their credit understood that partnering with us as opposed to owning us uh, could be more successful for them. And then we made the bet as a as a group. We didn't know COVID yeah. was going to hit, which is a whole. Yeah, yeah. But we made the bet as a group that we, you know, we were so out of favor as an asset class. You know, it was yeah. that was going on six or seven years? You know, the, the, I look at it a lot like playing poker or playing a, 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 a you know a game of craps or blackjack. Right. The at some point the odds become in your favor more that you're getting closer to the bottom of the cycle, and if you're ever going to put your chips into the middle that's kind of when you do it. I don't know, Rob, if you... If yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I was
2: going to say, look, the, the market is cyclical. I've been uh, on Wall Street now for going on 27 years and you know we've seen a variety of different cycles and we've been overdue for a cycle in value. So writing a check in 2019 seemed like a really good bet to me that at mm-hmm. some point over the next five to 10 years, value is going to come back into vogue. I didn't think we'd have a COVID pandemic that would actually drive what has occurred in the economy over the last two years that may have uh, hastened the move to people looking at value and better appreciating what is what is here. And I'd say now more than ever, I, I'm more convinced and more excited by the opportunity. I mean, you've got a segment of the market that, you know, to some extent, if you look down cap, is, is less than 4% of, of the total market. I mean, some of these companies in terms of in an aggregate, small and mid-cap yeah. value stocks, uh, and historically, that's been seven, eight percent. So it, it, a reversion to the mean is going to happen at some point, and 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 we think we're really well positioned for it, given that most of our competitors have have left the market.
1: Right, right. And I see I follow um, uh, Cliff Asness from AQR on Twitter. So he's always great, great worth because he kind of you know replies to all these guys just dunking on value. And one of the things that you always see is like people saying, "Oh well." you know, I'm just, you know, value's not going to work anymore. It doesn't work now because, you know, there's been a tech revolution and, you know, we live in the exponential age. And his replies are always so good because they're like, well, that's exactly why it works, right? It's not like we've never been through these technological, like, revolutions before. We had the, invent, you know, invention of the radio, like, railroads at one point with, like, you know, high tech. And value has just worked all the way through that because people always over-extrapolate, you know, the kind of current importance of the technological revolution that we're in.
3: I was
2: gonna say if you layer in Sam the, the environment we're in with higher rates too, you know, you, you, you gotta do math, right? At the end of the day, the value of the cash flow that these these you know revolutionary companies will promise you that to deliver in 5, 10, 15 years is worth a lot less today than the value yeah. of you're gonna get from cash for a company that, yeah. that provides barn services on the Mississippi. I mean, that the you know, a dollar is worth a lot more today than it's gonna be ten years out. Go ahead, right, Chris. Right.
3: Yeah, I, I was just going to say on the Cliff reference, or even like a Howard Marks. I mean, like, it, it, it if it's obvious, right? It, it's, yeah. it's sort of priced yeah. in, right? Like, okay. it's it's. I I don't think I I'm reminded of ninety eight, ninety nine, and the investment clubs that all of our parents at the time were in, and they all were saying we we didn't know what we were doing in value, and it's no different. Some of the, the it's it's the same, but it's more just pure retail, or it's yeah, you know, it's yeah. it yeah. It, it, just, it just feels like if you don't have a differentiated view or you're not willing to take, you know, to some degree, the other side of what's obvious. Yeah. I, I, it's, it just seems like it's hard. That's how you make money. I, I, yeah. I, I don't, yeah. you know, so I, I don't think the the stuff that people are talking about or Kathy Woods talking about on, on these, like, it's not like it's not known to all of us, right? Like right. these aren't, these aren't like novel ideas that people are coming up with that we're all just clueless to and they've discovered them, right? Yeah. They seem like yeah. they're out in the marketplace right now.
1: And like you say, you know, one of the things that we've thought about internally, you know, when this kind of moonshot approach is in vogue, like you're saying, like, you know, everyone's chasing the next Amazon, Kathy Wood's investing in innovation, you know, Chase Coleman at Tiger are sort of doing a a sort of more sophisticated version of that approach. But ultimately, it seems to be the same sort of one way sort of high beta concentrated bet on these kind of innovation, you know, new business models. Um, You know, it always feels like, you know, taking the other side of that trade, like you just said, makes sense, right? Because no one's looking at value. You know, the, the, the flows are all flowing to one area, which is this kind of moonshot approach. You know, the fact that there hasn't been a lot of flows and attention on value increases the opportunity set for you guys. Maybe in 10 years when everyone realizes, okay, you know, there is, there is benefits of, of, of investing in cash flow companies and sort of consistent performance as well. Maybe then the stuff like the moonshot stuff gets fairly priced again. But at the moment, if everyone's searching for the next Amazon, you're not going to be able to buy the next Amazon one. Well, if you can ever find it at a price that gives you Amazon-like returns, because <laughs> everyone's paying, you know, 50 times sales for these opportunities. So it's just like it feels like we always go to these these extremes. Again, like what Howard Marks would say, we swing between these extremes. And like I agree with you. I think perhaps in value, we're just at this kind of extreme level of sort of inattention and apathy towards. You know, what you guys are trying to achieve or have been. I think that's what we're going to try and get into here. Is That must be starting to swing, right?
2: Yeah, I, I certainly think it, that is the case. And Again, going back to the rate environment and, and where we're at, and the fact that the market is trying to digest, uh, for the first time in 40 years, a rapid increase in rates and, and whatever the, the rate and pace and duration of the cycle is going to be for, for the Fed, I think that's the, the 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 biggest issue that investors are grappling with now. Uh, there clearly is a feeling that if the Fed ends up uh, curtailing the the, the pace of, of its rate hikes, perhaps you know growth can come back into, in, into trend. Uh, but clearly with inflation you know running eight or nine percent, it's probably gonna last longer than than most people expect it to to last. And that should help uh, the value folks. Uh, continue to put, you know, results and and sort of garner the interest of, of allocators.
3: Yeah. I I mean, I, I I would, you would think that, you know, Sam, you reference like flows, right? Like just capital flows in general. I mean, just like, unless, unless, you know, everything we learned in school has changed, you know, where once capital flows too heavily into certain asset classes, right. You know, the prices Mm -hmm. change and the IRRs change. And it doesn't mean that, you know what. Tiger does isn't incredible. It is. But like, you know, if all of a sudden you're bidding with nine other people uh, for yeah. a, you know, series C round, then, you know, your IRR is going to be lower. And I think yeah. our argument, Rob, Rob's reference to less than 4% of the, the U.S. equity publicly traded market being in small cap um, down from eight, you know, says that there's less people competing with us. More of them are passive anyway. And right. so it run, running a concentrated portfolio, we're not running 300 stocks, right? It's not a quant product. Yeah, so yeah. if we can, of the 40 stocks, if we can get four or five really right and size yeah. them right, you know, because there's such little liquidity down there, you know, not only can, can you get these things right and make money, but you also, if you actually see liquidity flow or it flows into that asset class, there's nowhere for it to go, but um, right. just because right. there's no one there.
1: And if, and if you want to make the point of just how extreme it is on the other side, I mean, Bloomberg said, I don't know if you saw this, Tiger Global had five times as many subscription requests as redemptions in 2022, even they're down, you know, minus 50. And obviously, ARC has seen net inflows, you know, despite I think they've had a 17 month, 70% drawdown. So like, you know, the, the, the capital's still going there. At some point, you know, if you think that it, it reverses, um, and it does start to kind of come into value, that's a that's a that's a great tailwind to have as well obviously that will be that will apply to everyone not just sort of active strategies but we can get into you know kind of why that might be a you know how you think about those types of tailwinds valuation obviously being another but, um but sorry, rob, can,
3: rob yeah rob you can speak to this better than i can but i, I think it's important for your listeners to, to know that i mean we're we're a rel you know this is not a deep value firm right we're not right, right. buying you know stuff that's just cheap for cheap sake or might be in secular decline or all the things that people would knock about value, right? Yeah, It's okay. more relative value. I mean, these are really, we've got some really good businesses at really reasonable multiples with real earnings, really good cash flow valuations that, you know, have lots of different ways to win, which the, yeah. the orphan part of it is just like you're getting these things at even bigger discounts than we saw over the last decade, right? It's just we have to be patient. I I don't know, Robin, if you sort of describe it better.
2: Yeah, I mean, to expand upon that, a couple of things have occurred, right? With the drawdown in the market, you know, the cheap has gotten cheaper. So there's a lot of quality businesses that are essentially on sale now. We've, We've been practicing the same philosophy for 50 years, right? We buy companies undergoing some sort of fundamental change that are neglected. There's a lot of businesses undergoing change, and the neglect now is more than it was, two years ago, pre-COVID, uh, and that's giving us a great opportunity to build positions and, and, and partner with these management teams over a three to five year horizon to help generate you know, returns for our investors. And you know, we're doing it at high single digits multiples of free cash flow or low double digits multiples of free cash flow. If you look at the return streams over the last three and five years, you know the bulk of our returns in this product have come from staples, technology companies, material companies, financials, industrials, I mean it's a broad swath of industries to chris's point even though it's a concentrated portfolio of roughly 40 names you know our our largest position size can be five percent in any given any period of time and if we get that name right that generates a significant amount of alpha for our our clients so we're not we're not buying 300 names at 50 basis points uh we're taking concentrated bets on companies where we think the uh the the change is is idiosyncratic in nature and allows the management teams and the boards of these companies to generate their own returns without being somewhat tied to the economic cycle. So if you're you're a, a CEO of a company and you realize that you have a division that's undervalued and you spin it off and thereby get a higher multiple on the remaining asset, that's within their control. It's not dependent on what the rate and pace of the Fed increases are or what's happening with demand for some commodity in, in some foreign yeah. location, whether it be, yeah. whatever it is.
1: Well, you know, that's, that kind of leads to a question that I had for you on, on the portfolio side, and we'll get into the all-cap products a bit more uh, in a bit. But, you know, obviously, value stocks have not benefited from the same level of multiple expansion as growth stocks have benefited from. Now, how do you guys think, you know, currently you're saying earnings are going to sort of drive the return to the portfolio? And you're saying you can buy that quality cheap. Why is it that, that, that you can do that, right? If you've got these businesses that are not as cyclical perhaps as everyone thinks they are, that they have these high quality earnings and high quality cash flows, why is it that you can still pick up these names at sort of eight, nine times free cash flow when realistically, you know, on the other side of the bet, on the other side of the trade, or you know, the, the majority of sort of the market cap weighted indices tends to be driven by sort of multiple expansion. Uh, is no, that I, just I, I neglect? I,
2: I think news? it's to what Chris was talking about before. I think there's just a dearth of people, of investors in this segment of the market for whatever reason it may be. Uh, and the, the amount of competition we have in this space is, I don't know, Chris, you could probably give the, the numbers how much. How many of our competitors no longer do this the first 10, 15 years ago? But we're just there's just a, a high level of neglect. People are not focused here. Yeah, if you yeah look I, mean, at I, I think yeah, go ahead.
3: I was, I was going to say, I think it's part of its MIFID with the sell side kind of getting imploded, which you're, you're, your listeners will be familiar with just, you know, less and less coverage specifically on the sell side. And I think it's bifurcated in small cap. To be honest with you, like we see a lot of like managers that are like running a hundred to one hundred and fifty million. It's three people. They don't want any allocator money at all. They're they're running like quirky little portfolios. And then you have the folks that are running like five billion in small cap, and you know, which is way too much money, right? So and then and then the people that are just out of business, right? That have just gone away. So it's just there's just not. you know, but 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 I we would argue, and we can get into this, right? But when you have companies at eight times EBITDA that are then getting taken out at twelve times EBITDA, right, by private equity, you know, we joked, Sam, you and I earlier that like we charge like seventy five basis points to own a eight times EBITDA small cap value stock or mid cap value stock, and then you guys can everybody can go pay two and twenty to have some PE shop take their take 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 the same company out at, at, at a forty five percent premium, like that that that's if, if you start to see M&A really pick up in that way then that'll tell you where the value is and and people we would argue should be should be paying for for what we're doing not paying for what mm. he's doing because you are you're getting better better value on both sides
1: if that makes sense it does it does and i think like you know that again i had a question here i was going to come on to it later but i think it's a good time to ask it about SMIDCAP, because you know crm obviously have a long history focusing on uh, you know, the smid cap space and, um, you know, the all cap product itself, Rob, will go into it more, but, you know, does lean smid cap, uh, you know, basically with with inflation rates where it is. And now, you know, I was going to ask you this question about recessions as well. What the, the, I think the opportunity in smid cap to me is obvious because you've got the two tailwinds of Cheap because it's value, right? So cheap relative to growth, valuation spreads, however you want to put that. You've got this tailwind of sort of cheapness. And then obviously in Smidcap as well, you've got this tailwind of cheapness relative to large. You know, I think that spread is also at sort of historical levels. So you've kind of got these two, you know, tailwinds that that present you with this incredible opportunity. Um, But then I presume that Smidcap is kind of cheap because people now fear that we're going into recession. And so, um, you know, I kind of wanted to ask you, how do you, you know, why SMID cap if we are going to see a, a GDP slowdown? And then also at the same time, you know, inflation and in rates has kind of driven perhaps returns, you know, the, the great returns we've seen for value this year so far. Um, does that change if we do get this sort of recessionary slowdown and, and does smidcap really bear the brunt of that?
2: Yeah. So, so if, if you back up a second, I mean, if you go back and look at the data over the last four recessions, value tends to outperform growth full stop that 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 is the math. and then if you look at the at the opportunity set you know what's unique about our all cap product is it's true all cap it's not uh, a a a large cap portfolio with a few small cap stocks it's more Mm -hmm. equally weighted among large caps mid caps and small caps and frankly that's because that's we're going to where we see the highest uh, opportunity set with the greatest return potential with the least amount of risk so to your your point you know smith S- cap or at least our portfolio in general should do better because of that that nature of, of the, again the valuations and the idiosyncratic nature of the change that we've identified again it all goes back to the investment philosophy so to chris's point this is a relative value portfolio uh, and a lot of these companies most of these companies have some sort of idiosyncratic capability to outperform their relative peers I'll give you just a few but other Rob, statistics. But
3: Rob, don't you don't but don't you think, Robert, that it's already taken to Sam's point on small versus large? That, because it is bizarre that the the discount or the delta right now. Don't you think they've already gone out and I feel like they've already shot on an earnings and multiple basis our stocks,
1: right? They yeah, I was going to say so, so,
2: so. Yeah, so I, I was going to say. Well, I'll, I'll get to it, but basically. There's not a lot of, of further downside that you had in the multiples. I mean, you can contract a multiple from nine times cash flow to seven times cash flow. And you may argue, is it is it peak cash flow or trough cash flow? It really doesn't matter at the end of the day, given how, how cheap these stocks are. But, but most of our companies, 80% of our companies are buying back stock. With some of our companies buying back meaningful amounts of their market cap, we own Marathon Petroleum, who's buying back 20% of the market cap every year. Uh, 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 a few other companies are doing the same thing yeah. uh, maybe at a lesser extent
1: well this is this is something that i've you know that is i think is an interesting um, thing to talk about for value especially because this is what einhorn at greenlight's big point is right every letter I read from him, and obviously you know he's kind of like Marmite some people think he's he's amazing others obviously kind of point to his short positions in Netflix and Tesla and say that you know, he's kind of just a, a one trick pony and has never been able to sort of recreate what he did before. But I think his letters are always interesting because they give you an insight to the way that someone who is kind of philosophically valued thinks about this space. And he is always complaining that or, or always stating that he is not relying on market multiples to drive returns for his portfolio. He's not relying right. on investor you know, allocator attention coming back to the space. He's saying, well, all these companies will just buy back their market cap and my return will come from sort of that, you know, the, the companies themselves sort of taking control of their own destiny. Uh, I don't know but if you it, see it, that it, as well it, in your own
2: point. Yeah, no, he's, he, he, he's got a point. I mean, when we talk to company management teams, we routinely talk to them about allocation of capital. And the fact of the matter is if these companies are affecting change inside their organization that would warrant, you know, or, or generates faster EPS growth, and that's not being rewarded by investors. You're seeing companies take one or two things. They either go out and start to aggressively buy back stock or they end up putting the companies up for sale and trying to monetize the asset. I mean, we've had the last few years who've done that, who realize that valuation disparity between private market value and public market value is so great that they can actually, you know, generate a ton of return for their investors by selling out.
3: Yeah, I I mean, Sam, part of of your last three questions comes down to sort of like where we think we fit for your audience in Europe and the the folks Mm -hmm. that you know and how they're allocating. And I, I just... I still think there's such a risk that allocators in the states that we talk to or in Europe have to just not being here, right? In this SMID area. It is, we all understand that market uh, indexes are market weighted, right? Mm -hmm. And the S&P is, you know, how 20 stocks do is really all that matters in that, you know, in that index for what's going to happen. But I, I think the bigger risk for people is if SMID cap, to your point, does mean revert, right? Or does come back or our stocks do well. The risk of not being there from an equal weighted standpoint is huge, right? If, if, yeah. the, if the 480 stocks in the S&P or the Russell, the broad Russell 3000 X, the, you know, the top 10 names work and the top 10 stocks don't, right, It, it, it there, there will be meaningful dispersion mm-hmm. and people that have nothing X, you know, the 50 billion market cap and up, right, you have nothing below 40, 50 billion in market cap. That, that's going to be a big risk for allocators broadly for, for for their U.S. equity allocation, right? I'm not saying sort of global, but yeah, in, in, in the U.S. and that hasn't happened yet. But you saw you can go back for you know 98, 99, 99 were terrible for value. 00, 01 were monster years for true value. Both of those. Yeah, 02, yeah. 02 was terrible for everybody. And mm-hmm. 03 and 04 were great again for value. You yeah. had four or five years where value just did so much better that you run the risk of just not being there,
1: right? And I think that's, um you know, I think that's a good question here, just to focus on, um, or a good time to just focus on the all cap product a little bit here, because I agree with you, right? I mean, or I think the the argument that we we may be in a, a you know a dot com bubble type scenario uh is a valid one, right? That the start of this year certainly has kind of been, uh, I think it's been the best relative performance for value versus growth since then, right? And if value does go on to outperform growth. And clearly, that's a, a really interesting, um, you know, sort of time to be a value manager like you guys are. But the all cap product, you know, what are the things that you guys do differently? And how does the all cap product work so that people would be better off taking that bet or investing alongside you in that fund than just saying, you know what, I want generic value exposure. Let me go out and just buy the index. Because we're hearing that a little bit as well, right? You're seeing it across yeah. kind of cross allocators think that, oh, well, value is just kind of like, you know, it, it just is this thing that rallies now and again. It's almost like a trade. I'll use kind of ETFs to put it on. Um, and, you know, we're kind of arguing the opposite, right? We're kind of trying to say you need active in this space. And, you know, you, know, you need someone um, looking at this, you know, from an active perspective. So what is it, Rob, that you think you guys do differently from peers and then, you know, crucially differently from those sort of market averages that will give you the best chance of sort of outperforming them if we do get, well, in both scenarios, if we do or don't get a value kind of rip. But either way, what it is that makes you excited about the running the portfolio and and sort of this opportunity set that you have now?
2: Sure. So a a lot there. So let's start with the basics, right? We've been in business 50 years and we've been practicing the same philosophy for the entire 50 years, right? We buy companies, as I said several times, undergoing fundamental change where that change is in the control of management, and it's not dependent on uh, an outside force driving their ability to generate uh, significant EPS or cash flow growth. Uh, you layer that into the fact that it's a concentrated portfolio with 40 plus or minus names. Uh, it's not uh, you know 300 names at, at 20 basis points each. It, you know the biggest position size can be five percent. Uh, so we are taking concentrated bets on names. Uh, It's the fact that the portfolio is made up of both large, mid and small cap companies. You know, the bank currently is down market because that's where we're seeing the greatest opportunity set. Uh, The another thing is we're not buying just cheap statistics. We're not buying low PEs. As a matter of fact, our, our PEs and book values tend to look a little bit higher than the average when we actually buy the stocks because our earnings power estimates, our earnings power numbers for the companies tend to be uh, you know, higher than what consensus is, and it, as that change unfolds, it drives a higher uh, earnings or cash flow number. So th- those are some of the quick things that I would call out. What, what yeah, gets me most? E- go ahead, go ahead Rob. Sorry. I was gonna say what gets me most excited, and we've talked a lot about it here today, is you know, frankly, people aren't paying attention to this segment of the market. This is a neglected asset class, and that's where you create the most wealth for your clients. Is pivoting to something that where no one else is focused on. So, if we're going to be here, if if we are here. If it takes a little while, that so be it. But we have the courage of of the fact that it's worked over fifty years, and we're confident that the market, you know, comes and goes in cycles, and the cycles coming our way. You know, this is the first year probably of, of a few right, and many more to come. Go ahead, Chris. Hey,
3: hey, hey, you know, Sam, I I, I don't know. I mean, Rob, you might have to fill in a little of this here, but like one of the things we like about the positioning right now for the product is we kind of feel like you win both ways right now. So like if we if inflation remains elevated or it takes longer to come down or rates remain elevated, like value's gonna work and growth not gonna work, right? I mean, that's just like that's just the deal. And we're gonna do fine. We can get into individual stocks we have that sort of inflation actually helps them, doesn't hurt them. You know, we're we're gonna on a relative basis you know, we, we, we will be a good place to be for people that have to use the risk budget and equities. But on, on the flip side, if we are going into a recession, you know, the market's gonna sniff that out and discount it very early, right? Like six months before you're, you're through it, right? You know, small and mid's gonna work. And so, yeah. you know, in, in a sense, nobody can ever predict that. But if you look out two years and you look at both of those scenarios, like small and mid leads out of a recession regardless, whether it's core growth or value, right? And so just the, the size factor does. So I, it, it sort of feels like, you know, we should be able to capture meaningful performance here under both of those scenarios, uh, which I, I think is, is a pretty sort of interesting dynamic right now.
1: Well, let, let, me, um, let me conclude then with, with this question or, or, or this observation, Rob, just about the, the performance of the fund um, and kind of how it's done versus peers. And I think kind of talking about these, factor rotations and the influence of sort of factor exposure over the last sort of 18 months specifically and the, the knock-on impact that's had on, on performance. Um, you know, we, we, we track you guys versus, versus peers in the Morningstar category and you tend to come in very solidly sort of second quartile, you know, over those kind of year-to-date, one-year, three-year, five-year uh, numbers. And I think what's been interesting as is, is, is that there's a number of funds out there, and, and I don't want to sort of bag them, but that go from, you know, first percentile to 99th percentile. And all that's telling us at the moment in, in this market is that, you know, one risk management perhaps is not, you know, sort of first and foremost or, or, or at the forefront of their minds. And secondly, that the fact it just shows you who has like certain factor exposures. Yeah, And I think what's so interesting about the All Cap Fund and the relative value approach seems to be that, you know, it's... I don't want to call it all weather, but to Chris's point, you know, it seems to navigate certain market environments pretty well. And actually, over time, although you're never going to be sort of first percentile superstars, you know, over the longer time periods, you start to see that drag through and you end up, you know, with some pretty exceptional results. I don't know if that's something deliberately that you do or just the way that the portfolio sort of hangs in there in these kind of market environments. But I think it's a really interesting point to make just as a concluding sort of uh, thing to talk about.
2: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I think it goes back to what we've reiterated several times. It's a consistent process, right? So it yeah. shows you that we adhere to the same process and have adhered to it for a long period of time. Um, you know, we buy quality companies. We don't buy levered balance sheets. You know, the average debt-to-cap ratio right now is probably about uh, 17%, uh, you know, net debt-to-e, is probably two times. So quality companies undergoing fundamental change, allowing management teams to set their own direction for earnings and cash flow, uh, their, their destiny is in their control and we're not tied to the vagaries of of some fad or some some theme that you know is, is in vogue at the moment. It's probably the best yeah. way to say it.
3: Yeah, and then just the, mat, the math works the way it does and we all forgot about it for the last 10 years, right? So we're like, we're down like seven or 8% year to date on an absolute basis. We got to be up ten percent, right, to to make yeah. money for 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 your clients. Um, you're down thirty. You got to be up what forty five. I, I mean, it's it's, it's just, it just you know those big big drawdowns when they do happen uh, can can really hurt longer term return streams, um, and you don't realize it until it's happened. Uh, right. And I think for for us, I mean, we're not even we're not happy. We're down eight or whatever, but it's a lot better than a lot of our peers in the sense that we've been able to protect capital better. And you will start to see that, rightly or wrongly, right. All of a sudden, our three-year number or our five-year number is going to going to be very competitive with all the mm. growth managers that were all the vote, uh, you know, all yeah. in vote. Yeah. And, and and that's, you know, I think that's sort of to, to your point. If if you remain second or third, second quartile or around median for a number of years in a row, all of a sudden you become tenth percentile, right? Because you right. haven't blown anyone up.
1: Exactly. I think mean, that's a, yeah. That's kind of an important thing to, to notice at, at the moment, certainly with the, you know, the news headlines that we're seeing come in about various sort of high profile funds. So I think, I think that's a really important dynamic and one, yeah, that you say is, is becoming, you know, much more important um, in these periods where we're seeing these large drawdowns. So thank you guys. Thanks for, thanks for joining us today. We really enjoyed that conversation um, and hope to have you back again soon.
3: Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much, Sam. Great. Thank you.